This is Monica Perez, and we are here with a fan favorite returning guest, Eric Buchanan, to talk about a Supreme Court case whose time has come. But before we get to that, it is time to hear, to say hello to Eric and to have him tell us a little bit about what he does, because I want you to know what he's up to, because he gives us so much time and you should support his business or spread the word. Let's hear it. Tell it. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm doing good. A little stressed out. We had a little technical glitch, but we're going good. So yeah, for anybody who's waiting for us to start on time, it was my fault. I should have checked my connection earlier, but we got it. We're here. Yeah, so hi, no everybody. Problem. Uh, my name is Eric Buchanan. I'm a disability insurance attorney in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My law firm, Eric Buchanan and Associates, helps people all over the United States who have disability insurance policies. If the insurance company will not pay the benefits, whether it's long-term disability through work under ERISA, a long-term disability pension plan, or a private disability insurance policy, we can help. We can fa- be found on the World Wide Web at BuchananDisability.com. We work with local attorneys in other states, so we can handle your case anywhere in the United States. We're a national law firm. We have six attorneys. Um, we also help with life insurance, long-term care policies, health insurance claims. So if you have any questions, again, check us out at BuchananDisability.com. You know, Eric, if this doesn't work out for me, I might need a job. I might have to be <laughs> your girl in SoCal at some point. Uh, sounds good. We, sounds we like should a talk good about for- that sometime, Monica. Yeah, no, I'm serious. Like I was just saying, I bought this nice house in California. It's like, now I need a job because it's very expensive to live out here. But um, anyway, so for now, this is a job. But for you, that's great. I love what you do. And I really appreciate that you're here. Our listeners just love you. I get so many kind um, emails about you and people will just binge consume your series on the Constitution, which is it's really shameful that I get the order wrong of by and for the people. Yeah, of by and for the people with Clint Powell. Yes. Uh, he's my co-host. He's he's the local sort of radio personality locally who's been doing podcasts for a while. One podcast yeah, oh, per I, year. He introduced year. us. Yeah, he introduced us. Uh, we've been, we're close to episode 70 where we're breaking the Constitution down line by line. We did the Bill of Rights first and now we're working our way through Article 1 doing, uh, we've done like 12 different episodes just on Article 1, Section 8 so far. That's that's the level of Wow. Wow. So, yeah, it can be found. If you, if you, if you look up, um, say, Apple Podcasts, what are of by and for the people, or you can also look for Clint Powell and yeah. find us that way. Work Eric Buchanan. We'll way. put it in the show notes here. And it's also on my website at BuchananDisability.com. That's good for long rides or insomnia. Depending. I mean, set eight episodes on Section 8 or whatever, like that, that's that's for the, <laughs> that's if for the truth. You are a constitutional law nerd, and that's capitalized N-E-R-D, all four letters capitalized. Yeah. Then, yeah, then it's for you. I would love it. Yes, I would absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people love it. So anyway, that's why they love you. So here's the thing. When I saw this article in The Atlantic saying that the that the Supreme Court was hearing a case going after the administrative state, I wouldn't be surprised if the first. Yes, exactly. If the first thing I ever said to you was the administrative state is unconstitutional, yes or no. Like, it's my pet peeve. It happened from the first day of admin law when I was in law school where the the professor said, I'm not answering that question. I will not answer that question. We're just going to talk about it. We're not going to adjudicate the, its very existence. But I'm I'm down. I'm I'm against it. And I even am against it in this this case. I think this guy is right. And I have an answer that didn't come up in that article. But so tell us about it. So the article for those people who are not watching this or couldn't read that when I held it up for a second. Noah Rosenblum 
wrote an article, November 27th issue of the Atlantic. So if you, a couple, three weeks ago, the case that could destroy the government, what was once a fringe legal theory now stands a real chance of being adopted by the Supreme court. He is highly critical of what happened in this case so far. And I'm just going to skip ahead. And I'm going to say, this is from a left leader point of view. This is almost panic porn. The way he wrote this article is exaggerating, uh, and missing the point a few times. And I'd love to go into that some once we get into the case. But back to your original question, I would argue that the administrative state is unconstitutional as currently constituted, that there might be a place for administrative agencies. I'll give one quick example. I think administrative agencies could do a perfectly fine job of coming up with recommended rules and coming up with studies and having experts do stuff. But when you actually want to make a regulation in order for it to be effective as the rule of law, where you and I could be fined for something or put in jail, Propose it to Congress and Congress passes it yes or no. But you shouldn't have an agency put out a rule that has the force of law that it's up to Congress to get rid of later on or for courts to clarify whether it's constitutional or not. That's just one aspect, I would argue, that violates the Constitution and the separation of powers. What about the FAA, though? The, the, I'm sorry, which one? The FAA, the, the air airline stuff. So the SEC, which is the the agency in this case, I can give you an answer once we're into it. Like, I can totally dismiss that. No problem. But if if you were to propose a law to Congress that the feds should regulate air travel, would that mean that they could autonomously create a system of rules or would would that system then have to be a, like passed by Congress? You know what I mean? Like that that's a that's a technical thing. That's a great question. What throws me off a little bit. You know what I did before I became a lawyer? If you remember, I flew. Oh, were you a pilot in the Air Force? In the Navy. I flew P3s in the Navy for five Which years. Which the Air Force was originally of the Navy. So I have a brother no, in the, the Air, Air Force. Force. My father was in the, the Navy. Army. Oh, was it really? The Air Force was the Army Air Corps. Oh, yeah. I should have known the that. The Navy's always been separate. And the okay. Navy, yeah. And the Navy is where the real aviators are, if you ask. Right, yeah. right. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Because my dad was in the Navy during World War II. Yeah. So my actually my wife's my wife's dad was an Army Air Corps pilot who was shot down in his B twenty five on their first mission. That's a whole different story. <laughs> but yeah, long history of aviation. So the answer I would think is that if Congress wants to set up to have the FAA set up rules of how to fly safely, they could do that. Could they have uh, a, a set of rules that say if you violate these rules, then you can be held accountable? Yes, you can. You could have those rules set up. But if they're ultimately going to take away your license as a pilot or fine you for doing something, you should have the right to take it to an Article Three court and to, to okay. a real federal judge, somebody who's an independent judge outside of that agency. I think that would be one example of how it would be different. And the regulations themselves, things that, you know, you should fly on the even altitudes or odd altitudes when you're flying at a certain way. Those, those rules, they could just put out there and say, these are the guidelines. Right. But and you, states could adopt them. States could adopt them. And Congress, I think, could adopt them. But it would do, and Congress could adopt them even wholesale. The FAA puts out their set of rules and Congress says, you know, by a majority vote in both houses signed by the president, these are the rules. And if you want to change them, bring them back to us and we'll, and we'll pass law and change them. But if you give the FAA or any other agency, the Social Security Administration, the Federal Communications Administration uh, Commission, or in this case, the Securities and Exchange Commission, when you give them the authority to write the rules, they effectively 
have the have the, the ability to write laws in the United States that violate the Constitution in that they were never passed by Congress. Yeah, you could definitely work within that framework. You could pass like they do the National Defense Authorization Act or whatever every single year. Just they submit the new set of rules. You pass it. You know if a state isn't going to do it. You Delta Air, I'm not flying Delta. If they fly over Indiana until Indiana passes those rules. I mean, it's easy to to go. I like process. So it's easy to conform to a process. I understand. Thank you. And, I, and, and the FAA is my proof that government is not incompetent. They're trying to make it look incompetent now, but there's like 10 or 20 years where they're not a single fatality in a U.S. run commercial jet. And the ones that did happen are a little fishy. So I would say that um, I don't think they're incompetent, but I like that you have a process that is constitutional. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm knocking on wood when you say no commercial fatalities. I'm you sorry. You know, when that can happen. That I was like often. that. I was like that, especially under Trump, because I was like, they're going to break that trend with Trump. And they did with a very fishy little story. But I already believe that, you know, I'm a conspiracy uh, observer and I believe that they are um, about to they want to bring us rein us back in. So I actually think uh, air travel is going to might I hate to say it, but be less safe, especially since they're trying to introduce electric batteries instead of engines. Or engines that are run on olive oil or whatever they're doing, which which might work as a, as a solution eventually. We'll have to do that another time. We'll have to talk about the another, yeah. air, all air stuff with you. Now yeah, I yeah, remember. The other, the other one that concerns me is what they're doing in Europe is they're going to limit travel. You can't take a flight if the distance is less than a two-hour plane ride. They've already started instituting that. Wow. Yeah, they're starting to do that. So, But what happens if you're in, in Rome and you want to go to one of the islands off the coast of Italy? It's less than a two-hour ride, but how else do you yeah. get there? They're going to make you take a ferry, and that's going to save the environment. And what's really crazy is that the electric engines that they are trying to introduce, which was in this like Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, that has actually a, is a shorter distance. So if you have that rule in place, and then you introduce like that, that there's no more air travel. You didn't basically. want to travel anyway, Monica. You can just sit there in Southern California and read everything and on, zoom on, people. on your Kindle and. <laughs> Zoom overseas. Yeah. Why would you ever want to travel? Dude, yeah. it's no, I like, I like flesh. You can walk. <laughs> Just start walking. I want to go to Hawaii. You go. So, swim. You no. Swim. <laughs> Five hours. Uh, okay. So, so what is this case? Okay. The basic facts of this case are that Mr. Jacasey, um, I'm without getting into too much about what he did wrong, but if essentially, he had a, an investment fund and it had something to do with sort of conservative ideals. It was like the Patriot Fund or something like that. He had about $25 million that about 100 people had invested. And the SEC in 2011, during the Obama administration, ended up investigating him. And they essentially said that he was giving false and fraudulent information about where the money was being invested, how profitable it was, which allowed him to overcharge some fees. Uh, and then who were serving as the fiduciaries, the prime brokers and the auditor. Now, from the facts of the Fifth Circuit case and some of the other cases, it's, it's, there's some evidence he did some stuff wrong. Okay, fine. There's also some evidence that he has some defenses for those arguments. The question is, if you're charged with those kind of allegations as a, as a person who's involved in the investment business, should the SEC as an agency be able to not only, uh, fine you for that, make you regurgitate some money that they calculate the UO, 
also you lose your license. You can't be involved in the investment business anymore. So you lose that business. And you can even, they, they even wanted to order that he could never be around other investment brokers or financial people. So totally losing his livelihood. So a significant fine refund, according to their calculation, and totally be out of the business. I feel like isn't the right remedy here that the victims sue him for fraud and they're the ones who get the money? Yeah. So one way that this could have been treated without it, if we didn't, why we don't need federal agencies is because there's a common law cause of action for fraud or misrepresentation. And yes, the individual people could have sued. That would be part of it. Even if you want to have an SEC whose job it is to investigate these kind of things, the big question that he raised in his case, and I think it's a really fair question is, okay, you've got this evidence against me. I want my day in court. And the seventh amendment says that in all causes of action at common law worth more than $20, the right to a jury trial shall be inviolate. So the, our founding fathers gave us the right to a jury trial. It was one of the things that we fought the revolution over. One of the things that's listed in the Declaration of Independence was the fact that King George wanted to take away the right to jury trial for people who weren't paying their taxes or, or otherwise maybe arguing for the freedom of the colonies. And, in, and instead of having a jury trial in the United States or in what was then the, the colonies, he wanted to be able to take people back to England and have them hurt, have them before military tribunals without wow. juries. And England has a thousand year tradition. It was at that point a 750 year tradition of having jury trials for, you know, for people. And since the Magna Carta in the 1200s, it had just become one of the fundamental rights of Englishmen was to have the right to a jury trial. And here King George wants to take it away. We fought a war over that crap to have the right to a jury trial. So the idea that over time we would, as Americans, put in place these administrative agencies that somehow would replace jury trials, that's one of the big arguments that Mr. Jacesi is making, that, that he should have the right to a jury trial. The other argument that he made that's a big deal is the way the SEC statute is, is set up the SEC could give you a right to a jury trial as part of their proceedings, or they could do the typical way that administrative uh, agencies work. And for people who are not familiar with this, give me like, I'll give the, the one minute rundown of how this usually works. I used to do social security disability cases. It's a very similar process. It works the same way in the FCC. It works the same way in a whole bunch of administrative agencies. What happens is you have a dispute. The agency thinks you've done something wrong. Or in social security cases, you're claiming you're entitled to your social security disability benefits. At the, in the SEC, the agent inve agency investigates what you've done. And if they come up with enough evidence that they've decided there's something of concern based on their own investigation, they consult with their own decision makers and they say, yes, we're going to prosecute this case. That includes potentially consulting with the guy who's going to make the decision. They get all that information all together and you are eventually allowed a hearing in front of an administrative law judge. Administrative law judges are not appointed by Congress, not appointed by the president, approved by the Senate, like we do for, for real judges. They're basically picked by the agency. And those administrative law judges not only get to hear the facts of the case, but they can even decide, well, maybe we want to impose a new agency rule that would be better going forward that would address this situation. And so you can actually be punished for something that wasn't clearly a rule violation. Wait. Didn't we talk about that? That's like an ex post facto. So that, that goes that goes back to the, uh, let me make sure I got the name of the case right. It's the Chenery Doctrine. 
Yes. Okay, and, and just let me finish the process here for a second, yeah, and then we'll sure. bring how Chenery applies to this. So that process is you eventually have a hearing in front of the administrative law judge. It's sort of like a trial, but typically in most agencies, the rules of evidence don't apply. So hearsay evidence can come in. That means out in court statements, you can have written letters that get admitted as evidence. You can have documents that are admitted as evidence. You don't have a right to cross-examine your witnesses, you, uh, the witnesses against you. You don't have any of the due process rights you would have in a real jury trial. And it's and the decision is not made by a jury or peers, which is the whole basis for the Seventh Amendment. The, jury, the decision is made instead by this administrative law judge who basically works for the agency, who has already talked to the prosecutors ahead of time. Who can, who's got a, who's wearing multiple hats. Their hat is to be fair, but another hat they have is to enforce agency policy. Another hat is to come up with new agency policy that would be good for the public. And another hat would be to, to do the best they can for the public good and based on the agency's mission. Once that ALJ makes that decision, you might even have another appeal internally in the agency. For example, the SEC has an appeal to the commissioners. Social Security cases, they have something called the Appeals Council. Once you've been through those steps, most agency decisions ultimately can be reviewed by a real federal judge in federal court, except instead of getting a jury trial or instead of having the judge decide the case anew, the federal judge gives the benefit of the doubt to the agency's decision-making. Something called the substantial evidence test is usually what's applied. That the agency wins and gets to enforce whatever punishment they want to, and their findings or fact are, are conclusive as long as they're based on substantial evidence. That's the way it generally works. Now, you brought up the Chenry Doctrine a minute ago. Let's, we've talked about this on a previous podcast, but just to remind people, back in the late 1930s, there was a, another SEC case. It's Chenry versus the SEC. The federal government during the Depression under FDR uh, wanted to change the rules about who could own utility companies. They wanted to make it harder for people to own private utility companies. And so they put a bunch of new rules in place. A company, a, a family basically tried to follow the rules the best that they could and sold their stock in the old company to a new company that would follow the rules that would comply with the new rules. And the SEC basically, the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court and the SEC says, well, we've got these new rules we put in place since they did that, and now they've committed fraud. And they said, wait a minute, you didn't tell us about those rules when we set it all up. And in Chenery 1, the Supreme Court sends it back down to the agency with the decision that the agency can't defend it in court their decision based on a new rule that they made up. Okay, makes, That's fair. makes kind of fairness sense, right. Then in Chenery 2, the case goes back to the Supreme Court, and ALJ sat down and said, okay, I've looked at the facts, and I think a new rule should be blank about how you set up, set this up and you violated that rule. And so I'm going to hold you guys to be in, in, in violation of the SEC and therefore your attempt to continue to own this utility doesn't go through and you're not allowed to own the stock in the new utility and throws out their property rights to this family run business that now they can't own anymore because of a new rule that the SEC made up through the ALJ's decision-making process. The ALJ made up the new rule in consultation with the agency. And when that got back to the Supreme Court, by that time, FDR had had the opportunity to appoint about five or six new justices. So the Supreme Court makeup had totally changed to being mostly people appointed by FDR. And the Supreme Court says in Chenery, 
that yes, part of the decision-making process of agencies when they are adjudicating cases, in other words, when they're acting like the judge in your case, they also have the power to act as an executive agency to enforce the rules. And they also have legislative power to make up what the rules are. <laughs> and all of and they, and they're allowed to make up the rules in individual cases while they're hearing the facts to decide what's the best policy. And this is the great quote, Justice Jackson, who had been on the winning side the first time is now on the losing side. One of the greatest quotes all time from the Supreme Court when he said, I give up. Now I realize fully what Mark Twain meant when he said, the more you explain it, the more I don't understand it. Yes, it's a, it's a violation of the fund, one of the most fundamental tenets of law. You cannot be held responsible for breaking a law that was not a law when you acted. I mean, you just can't. So one of, it's just so one of the major problems with the administrative state that that happened because of all those falsities in the 20th century. It's an abuse. It's an absolute abuse. They didn't have to do it that way. That under Chenery two, agencies can make up new rules during the adjudicative process. And do they really do that? Do you feel like that's that's a common practice or was that just the height of of the atrocities? So I think so, for example, in the Social Security Administration, they've actually put out some rules that says they can't do that. They've actually they've yeah, created their it's, own it's rules egregious. that say they can't do that. But there's other agencies like the SEC that basically says that they can do that because the, 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 the argument is from their point of view from the SEC's point of view and the people in charge is there may be a situation where there's something that's pinky, fraudulent, unfair, and we just didn't think to write a rule about that. So if we get into a situation where this seems really unfair, we can decide during our adjudication process that going forward, there's going to be a new rule that you can't do that. No, by the way, you're liable for your mistake of breaking the rule that we just made up. Well, I feel like, though, that's having your cake and eat it, too, because that is kind of a common law, case law type thing. But they do write statutes. Absolutely. So You're it's right. one way I, or the other. I'm happy with the common law. Yeah. Judges make up rules like that in the common law, but they're independent judges. They're not part of the agency that's wearing three hats. It gets to adjudicate cases like it's a judge, but it gets to make up rules like it's Congress without the power of Congress or having been elected by the people like Congress has. And it gets to decide what cases to enforce and what policies to pursue as if it's part of the executive branch, mm -hmm. if it works for the president. Mm -hmm. So that actually, let's, let's, let's go through what the, the court said. So the court agreed with Mr. Jacchese. This is the Fifth Circuit. So let me take a step back very quickly for people who don't know how this works. When the SEC gets done with the process, you have the right to go to court and you get to go to the district court, which is the local trial court. It's the federal court level that most major cities in the United States have a federal court. It's usually divided up in district, different districts. Here in Tennessee, we have a Western district, a middle district, an Eastern district. California, you have a Southern district, a Central district, a Northern district, that kind of stuff. And, and there's, there's, courthouse in San Francisco, there's a courthouse in San Diego, there's a courthouse in LA, there's all these, you know, different courts. And those district judges make the first decision. Well, he goes to district court, the district court in Texas, and he loses and he appeals to the Fifth Circuit. So the Fifth Circuit has a three-judge panel, and this, this covers the states of Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So he brings his case up to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit at this point 
is not allowed to say whether the SEC got the facts wrong. They're only allowed to say whether the SEC's was their decision based on substantial evidence. But what they are Hmm. allowed to say is whether the SEC's process is constitutional or not. So one of the things that they end up saying, we've talked about a second ago, he is that Mr. DeKesey argued, I should have the right to a jury trial under the Seventh Amendment. And so the Fifth Circuit goes through the analysis and the test is, was the cause of action, the type of case that you are facing, one that you would get a jury trial at common law back in 1787 when the Constitution was written or 1791 when the Bill of Rights was adopted? Essentially, that's the test. And the, and the Fifth Circuit says, well, yeah, fraud cases are were normal cases at common law. Like you mentioned a minute ago, if, if I promised that I would take care of your money and invest it a certain way, and I went out and gambled it in Las Vegas instead of investing in the stock market, you would have a case against me for fraud, especially if I didn't return your money to you. We lost if we lost the money. So yeah. you, could, you don't need the SEC to solve that problem. Right. But. The argument is that if the SEC is going to take over that power, you and I and everybody oh, else nice. in America would still mm-hmm. have the right to say, but if, if SEC, if you think I did that wrong, you want to prosecute this, you have to take me and let me go to court to a real federal judge with a jury, then the jury trial is guaranteed by the, no, that's by great. the Seventh Amendment. I love that. The other part of the test is the Supreme Court says, okay, was it a cause of action at common law? And if it was, is it essentially a private right or a public right? And this has been a big dispute for most of the 20th century that has allowed agencies to get away with too much. They get away with, then you don't get the right to a jury trial too often because some courts will basically say, well, it's a public right anytime the government's involved and they're protecting the public generally. And this, this court went back and said, no, that's not the way it was originally intended and that's not the way it's generally intended. A public right is something that's like a new right that was created that the government gives you a right that's not a normal common law right. A good example would be social security benefits. If you go back to the 1700s in Great Britain and in early America, you didn't have a right to social security benefits. And so if the court system wants mm-hmm. to not allow you a jury trial, if you've been denied your chance to get social security disability, for example, that might be a public benefit because that was created in a special law by the government that didn't exist in common law. On the other hand, if you're charged with fraud and, and accused by fraud, whether it's the government or whether it's another person, those are classic cases going back to the old days in, in England where you would have the right to a jury trial. And it is basically a private cause of action because it's you being accused of doing something wrong. And the court goes on to say, every time that there's a law that protects you from harming another individual, like committing fraud, well, of course that protects the public. But you can't turn every one of those cases into a public law case. So at the end of the day, the Sixth Circuit, I mean, the Fifth Circuit has said that this guy gets a right to a jury trial. That's pretty groundbreaking because of a lot of case law that had really broadened the definition of what was public law and narrowed the definition of what things were causes of action found in common law back in the days of the of founding fathers. So they've kind of gone back and done the research and the fifth circuit says, no, this is the way it should be. It should be. So it's providing a constitutional protection that we should have had all along. And they've done a good job clarifying it. You sound like Clarence Thomas. I hope so. (laughs) Isn't that what he's been doing? It's like, hey, wait a second. You've been wrong the whole time. Let's go back and look at what this really means. I mean, I'm loving that. Maybe that's why he's my hero. But yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> I have his book here. It's My Grandfather's Son. Yeah. Do you have that I've one? I've listened to the audiobook version. It's fantastic. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Really he was. speaks Gullah. Like, that's what my son says. He's like, you want affirmative action? That guy spoke Gullah. And then I have a listener, a very successful listener who is from down south, and he said he he knew he can speak it. It was like a slave language, but it kept, it still exists like as a dialect in some real backwaters in Florida and Louisiana. And, uh, you know, you just got to figure someone goes from Gullah to the Supreme Court, you know. Separate. <laughs> why, are you, why are you giving him a hard time? That's probably exactly why they're giving him a hard time. He's, Se he's Separate too footnote, good. if anybody really wants to learn about Gullah culture and kind of where it overlaps with the real world, Pat Conroy wrote a book called, his first real fiction book was called The Water is Wide. Wow. Pat Conroy's first year after college, after he got done at the Citadel, was he was a public school teacher out on one of the Gullah Islands off the coast of South Carolina. And they made a movie out, out of it called Conrack with John Voight. Was it a good book? Fantastic. Oh, because Pat Conroy. Yeah, I liked it. I read several books of his that were good. Yeah, definitely. The Water is Wide. That sounds like a good vacation book. Yeah. One of the scenes in there, he takes these kids who live on these islands have had really no interaction with culture and takes them trick-or-treating on the mainland for the first time. Oh, it's, my it's, gosh. It's a great, yeah, it's a great scene of the book. All right. I'm definitely getting that book yeah. for my Christmas reading. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So the next issue that Mr. Drakeese raised and that the Fifth Circuit thought was a really good point was there's the concept of the non-delegation doctrine. And this is what Noah Rosenblum in his Atlantic article is really worried that courts are going to start paying attention to. So here's the argument. The founding fathers said that when we get to vote for our, mem our members of the legislature, our senators and representatives, and originally it was just our representatives and senators were represented by the state, but that's the voice of the people. That the U.S. Congress passes laws that the, what tempers them from doing something wrong is we can vote for somebody else if we don't like the laws they're passing. And they can't get rid of that duty and give it to somebody else and let somebody else create the laws because whoever else that might be is not responsive to the people. It's the whole point of a representative republic or a, repu or a democratic republic, as some people are saying these days. Even if you say democratic republic, it's still the point is you have the right to, to vote for the representatives who are the ones that actually have the power to pass laws. You can't give that power to someone else. Well, there's Long going back even to the founding fathers, the argument, well, what are you going to do about certain agencies that just need to figure out what some of the rules are going to be? You know, what about the customs people? What did, That was kind of the stuff the founding fathers mm -hmm. dealt with. What about in the military? What about some of those basic things where they need to be able to make up their own rules? And then the argument gets into, well, how much can they make up their own rules before it has to be approved by Congress? Well, around the time of FDR in the 1930s, these ideas started basically with Woodrow Wilson. But then by the time of FDR, the whole idea was these agencies are the solution to the big problem of how we're going to be more efficient and how we're going to get progressive ideals through because Congress gets gridlocked too often. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. That's it, what I like about Congress. <laughs> yeah. In fact, let me talk. Let me just just a quick step back. Woodrow Wilson basically called the, the idea of agencies being able to write the laws and create the rules to solve stuff using experts it to solve the problem of gridlock and get rid of the burden of popular accountability. Woodrow Wilson actually said that. We <laughs> should have the, right. The burden of popular accountability as in the right of us to vote for the people that are making the rules. 
Wow, he was a technocrat. His guy, uh, Colonel House, he wrote that book, uh, Drew Administrator. Did you ever read that book? Yeah, it's I haven't about read the book, like the president should be a CEO, and um, at that same time, King Gillette wrote the book World Corporation. They were they were setting the stage for the technocracy that is being f- coming to fruition now. They're like the autocrats we, we we're dealing with today, the yes. Bill Gateses and those kind of people. Definitely. So a couple of the quotes that he said. The idea was that we cannot that that we cannot advance as a society if we have congressional gridlock, if the people can't vote on people that can agree on this stuff. And Woodrow Wilson was arguing out loud, openly in writing, these are bad things. The Constitution shouldn't <laughs> still be in force because of modern society and its complex problems. And instead we should allow these experts. And the way he kind of got away with that is he was saying these experts should be apolitical, that they shouldn't be Democrats or Republicans. They should just do what's right based on whatever their expertise tells them to do. And so one of the quotes was, he would call this the efficient separation of politics and administration. Now, what's the problem with that? If you get rid of politics, that means we, the people, don't have a voice in the decision-making anymore and the policies that are being made. Um, another quote from, from Woodrow Wilson was combining the powers of the agencies, quote, enables the bureaucracy to tend to the details of administering progress without being encumbered by the inefficiencies of politics. Woodrow Wilson said this stuff yeah. out loud. Yeah. And the whole idea was we got to get rid of the separation of powers in the yeah. United States. You've got to have efficiency by combining legislative power, adjudicative power and executive power in these agencies. So they can go get stuff done. And the enlightened, you know, good faith argument from their point of view was we can have these experts just do the right thing instead of having politics get in the way. They won't they won't be bothered by politics because he had this worldview that the experts were not going to be political animals. They weren't going to be have a political point of view. Do you have a sense of what he meant by progress? Oh, yeah. The idea was we're going to have these experts tell us how to create a better society. So it wasn't about we'll have washing machines and pesticides, which I mean, I'm not saying those things are good. But like if you think of comfort and quality standard of living, he wasn't talking about standard of living. He was talking about more fundamental changes. Right. Those are progressives. Correct. Well, I think he was talking about things like making sure that your meat is is safe to eat because it was written on not long after, you know, uh, up to clear and, and Upton Sinclair and what was the name of the book, The Jungle, yes. about how nasty the slaughterhouses were in Chicago. Yes. So that was the kind of stuff influencing this, but also the idea that, well, if if we could run the railroads better by having an agency nationally deciding what the rules are all going to be the same and not let these private companies compete against each other anymore so that we can be more responsive to the farmers needing to ship their goods more cheaply, essentially a command economy type ideas. Right. That's the stuff that Woodrow Wilson liked and why he wanted to have the agencies be able to have the power to do that. Because we, the people, were not necessarily going to vote for a command economy, but the agencies might put it in, and they just know better. Here's the real bottom line. They just know better than you, Monica. Right. Well, what they really want is, I mean, I would even say, like now it's very clear that uh, a, quote, better society doesn't mean trains on time. It means something way bigger than that. But I would say that mainly... All of that stuff has and probably was intended to concentrate power in the hands of the few who were no doubt behind him and Colonel House and everybody else. So I was just wondering what, you know, what his goal was, but I understand it. Thank you. 
I think, well, it was, he, he was the guy behind the predecessor to the United Nations. So I know, to, I know the League of Nations. He I wanted know. to have the League of Nations and he wanted to have all these administrative agencies. And then one of his acolytes is FDR, who actually used the Great Depression as an excuse to put a lot of these policies in place and eventually maybe had even go, invented it, maybe even prolonged it maybe for that prolonged purpose, the, prolonged the depression. But he certainly what FDR got to do being elected three times and then the fourth time he, he was elected a fourth time. But during his three full terms, he appointed more justices to the Supreme Court than anybody else in history. And basically completely turned over the Supreme Court. And that's what opened the door for this modern administrative state where the Supreme Court basically agrees with Woodrow Wilson from 20 years earlier. These agencies need to have the latitude to do their job. And the bureaucratic expertise is what we need. And the political process following the Constitution, that's just getting in the way of progress. Well, I have to say, when I read this article in The Atlantic, and I think that's where it said that the SEC was created in the wake of the crash of 1929. And for the first time, I thought there might have been a multiple purpose. So I think the 1929 crash was definitely promoted and exploited by the people who benefited from it, just the way Hank Paulson did whatever it was, 2008. But... I, I so I thought it was there for a purpose, but now I think it was it, it might have been that like instant crash event could have been a false flag or it intentionally conjured up to justify this specific intervention, which I believe the first SEC commissioner was the highly corrupt Joe Kennedy, was it not? No, that could have been. I'm not sure about that. Oh yeah, he was chosen because he knew he, the the argument was well, we're choosing him, a complete criminal, because he knows what the crimes, you know, how to prevent those crimes. I believe that was that was basically the story. Of course, I would say once a criminal, well, in his case, I'm not sure he was fully rehabilitated before he took on that role. But anyway, seems like a scam. Okay, keep going. So. Where, uh, so the, the bottom line is that when FDR put all these justices in place, the idea that agencies would, would no longer have constitutional limits, that people couldn't come in and say, hey, you're violating the Constitution by creating these rules that really should be coming from Congress, the door, the floodgates opened in the late 30s. Um, and and uh, let me just make one little comment. The reason I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit about whether the depression was a false flag or not was Hoover was the president up until 1932. And I don't, I think he was just a little bit indifferent and some stuff happened behind the scenes. He may have, it may have ha happened, but what I think to do a lot of the stuff they did later in the thirties that extended the depression. See, Hoover did basically everything that FDR did. He just did it with a lighter touch. Whereas Harding did nothing. And that was over in a year. And then Coolidge did nothing. And I think that's why they killed Harding. And no. although people will say that he died of natural causes or that his wife killed him, but I'm pretty confident that he was assassinated. And then Calvin Coolidge, who was great. Uh, yeah, they forestalled it. They took an idiot like Hoover or I would say a bad actor like FDR, although some people will defend FDR as not being intentionally a bad actor. But in any case, uh, I think all of that was created by the Hoover FDR continuum. Yeah. We could talk about that sometime. We should. So here's the bottom line of how this affects this case. The, one of the main issues that came up in the 1930s was this idea of the non-delegation doctrine. The idea that Congress can only give so much power to a member of the president's staff to somewhere in the executive branch, which eventually became these administrative agencies, 
to create new rules, Congress can only do that so much because otherwise they're giving away their power to pass laws. And under the Constitution, we vote for our representatives and that's where laws are supposed to be passed. And what happened in the 1930s, they basically said, oh, that's just getting in the way of progress. We need to be more efficient. Uh, good ideas outweigh the Constitution is effectively what was going on in the background with a lot of these progressive people. And they essentially agreed that as long as Congress gives some sort of intelligible principle when delegating powers to agencies to create law, that that would be constitutional. And the floodgates open. Yeah, because it's such a low bar. It is an incredibly low bar. Here's where it's interesting in this case. The Dodd-Frank Act amended the powers of the SEC to tell the SEC that if you want to prosecute somebody, if you, wanted to, if you want to show that somebody has committed fraud or some other violation of the SEC, you have the choice to either prosecute them before an ALJ. And I think the li- why they would do that, the limit is, well, you can find them, you can take away their license, you can prohibit them from being engaged in the industry anymore, but you can't put them in jail based on an administrative process. The agency also has the choice of bringing a criminal or civil case in an Article Three court where you would have the right to a jury if you're accused of these things. And the important thing under the Dodd-Frank Act for this case is they, they said, agency, you have the choice. Bring it before an ALJ or bring it before Article Three court. And this Fifth Circuit case, the Dracassi case, they basically say, where's the intelligible principle telling the SEC which cases go which way? They gave zero guidance. The Congress, when they passed the law, saying, SEC, you can choose to either go path A in front of an ALJ or path B, take let the person go to federal court and have their right to a jury trial. You have complete discretion to decide that. Period is what Congress said in the Dodd-Frank Act. No guiding principle, no way of telling them as Congress, we want you to think about if it's more this way is why this person have a right to a jury trial. If it's more this way, they should only get a right to an ALJ. No guiding principle at all. But I mean, that really opens it up to political persecution. It, I think it does. But playing the game of what the FDR era judges started saying, you can't, as Congress, totally delegate your power in an unfettered way. You have to at least this very low bar of having an intelligible principle. What's the basic guideline? And the Fifth Circuit saying you didn't, Congress didn't give them any, the SEC, any guideline in the, in the Dodd-Frank Act that amended the SEC rules because they gave them unfettered discretion to prosecute the case either way. And therefore, the choice to have the person before an ALJ is also unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine. So super low bar, not The met. super low bar was not even met. <laughs> That's the point. Now, just briefly, there's the third thing that they reached I want to get to in a second. But I want to address what Mr. Rosenblum's panic porn in his Atlantic article. Yeah, it was very one-sided. He very much thinks that if this case gets decided by the Supreme Court in a way similar to what the Fifth Circuit did, if they uphold what the Fifth Circuit said, it's going to be this dramatic clawback of the non-delegation yeah. doctrine. Right. Unfortunately, I really wish he was right. <laughs> I wish he was right, but I don't think yeah. so. I think that the Dodd-Frank Act could be easily amended to simply say... Cases that need this criteria should go to Article Three courts. Right. Cases that need this criteria can be handled by LJs. Here's our guiding principle. 
It could be one sentence from Congress to provide a guiding principle. But the fact they didn't provide a guiding principle at all means it's unconstitutional if the Fifth Circuit case is upheld. Boy, is what it, clever it, lawyer dug that out? Oh, I would ask the question, does that make this make it magic language? Do you accept, what do you accept, mean? Does the Congress oh, yeah. have to put mm-hmm. one sentence in there? Right, right, that right. Is, here's our like, guiding principle. Just say principle. please. <laughs> yeah, here's yeah. our guiding principle. Okay. The third point, and this one gets a little interestingly technical, so I'm going to try to be careful about it. The argument Mr. DeKelsey made for his third point why this was unconstitutional is he said that the SEC ALJ, the administrative law judge working for the SEC, had too much independence. And this is what Mr. Rosenblum's complaining about. And you would think it normal people would say, well, don't you want the judge deciding your case to be as independent as possible? Right. And the answer is, here's the reason why it's important for him to not be completely independent. Because remember what we talked about with the Chenery case a little while ago. ALJs and administrative agencies are not just deciding this case to decide whether your facts meet a certain set of rules. ALJs are also allowed to make up new rules. Right, right. They're allowed to create policy for the agency. Right. Their expertise can be applied to these facts to create a new rule. That's what the Chenery case said. And that's an SEC case. That's long been the tradition of ALJs and a lot of these agencies of their expertise. So they're they're adjudicating, they're legislating, and they're executing, and therefore they can't just be like a judge in a courtroom. Correct. And so essentially what courts have said is the idea of deciding these new policy rules is actually uh, the agency acting in their executive branch. The ALJ is actually acting for the president when he's saying this is a policy thing that we want to move forward, that we want to put into hmm. the rules that we want this agency to do. And so as uh, an an agent of the executive branch, the ALJ is now wearing that hat when they potentially could make up these new rules. So if you get in trouble with the SEC because your investment business may have done something that they don't like, they investigate it and they say, well, you know what? Every rule that we've already written, you didn't break, but you've given us an example of something we need to write a new rule about because we do not want People who have podcasts to also be able to give investment <laughs> advice because that's a conflict. <laughs> and so they write that new rule and now they enforce it against you and they take away your license to be an investment advisor or to have them, you know, to have an investment account or, or give advice to other people, whatever it is that you're doing. And so if that's the new rule they're making up, that authority of that ALJ to make up that new rule really should have somebody over him to say, no, that's not a new rule you can make up. So how does he get fired for making up that new rule? Who holds him accountable? And this is where the court reaches this third reason why the setup is unconstitutional. The ALJ cannot be fired except by a proceeding from the Merit System Protection Board, which basically means for cause with an independent agency within the federal government deciding whether he's committed or he he or she has committed some kind of uh, fraud or or improper behavior that's some kind of corrupt behavior under the rules that apply to these government agents. And on top of that, even if the Merit System Protection Board rules that they can be removed, the commissioners at the SEC get to decide whether they get removed. So he's get, so that ALJ, he or she has two different groups that would both have to agree that he's fired. And on top of that, mm-hmm. the commissioners of the SEC can only be fired for cause. They have a due process right, so the president can't fire them. So ultimately, what this boils down to is, Monica, 
2032, when you get elected president <laughs> and you decide to be like the new guy in Argentina and just go fuera, fuera and get rid of all these people, you can't do that because these commissioners are protected by, for being fired only for cause. You can't decide as the president to get rid of a bunch of these people inside the administrative agency and draw it down in size, even though the whole theory behind their power is that they work for you as part of the executive branch. But they don't actually work for you because they have these protections. And the mm -hmm. ALJs, it's even worse because they have a second level of protection. First, their mm -hmm. bosses can be, can't be fired by you. But then the next level down is they, they, those bosses have to decide to fire them. Plus, they have the protection of the Merit System Protection Board. So, President Perez, I'm advising you as your chief advisor of how to reduce the administrative state. And I start going through the list of people you can fire and get rid of and just leave it as an empty office. You can do that. There's a whole crap ton of the administrative agencies that we can't do that to. We have to get the laws changed so that we can fire these people because they're, they're going to keep enforcing whatever progressive Arbitrary. policies that you don't like. They're going to keep doing it anyway. And, and, and so what if they're politically captured? That's the problem with Woodrow Wilson's theory from the yeah. very beginning. These people can't be fired by the president. And if they have an agenda that they, they don't like anybody who is a, uh, a conservative offering financial advice. That might be what happened to Mr. Jacuzzi. Or maybe they just don't like anybody who offers financial advice that suggests that you don't use uh, what are, uh, ESG scores. That you always have to use ESG scores. If you're opposed to ESG scores, you shouldn't have a license anymore. So if they take on a political agenda, there's no way that you as the president or whoever the next president is, Biden or Trump or whoever, can get rid of these people because they have all these protections. Because they have all these protections, but they also have the power to create policy. Again, the Supreme Court says, I mean, the Fifth Circuit says, third reason Mr. Drakeese's process violates the Constitution and this, he, he has the right to have if the SEC wants to continue to bring charges against him, they have to do it in Article Three Court. Okay, so is that where we are? So where we are now is the Fifth Circuit issued that ruling uh, last spring, and the Supreme Court has granted certiorari, and they just had the oral arguments. And you can imagine how the oral arguments broke down. <laughs> Basically, along those same lines as we've talked about before where the three left-leaning justices are basically asking the questions, if we go along with this, how will the agencies ever do anything? How will they solve the problems? It's almost uh, the case we, you and I talked about before in a previous podcast, EPA versus West Virginia, where the Supreme Court basically said the, the Obama administration and then the Biden administration reinforcing the same regulations that basically would limit the number of coal-fired power plants in the United States Mm -hmm. You can't do that under the law that was passed by Congress under the EPA because the, the, the power of the EPA is to only regulate the pollution of individual plants, not the collective pollution of all the plants. Mm -hmm. Well, six justices basically said, therefore, this regulation's improper. Three justices basically said, no, the regulation should be proper because Congress, when they give general authority to the agency, they're relying on the agency's expertise to solve these problems. And now that we're facing the massive threat of global warming, how dare we stop these agencies from issuing these kind of rules? Because the world's going to come to an end. Well, it changed the law, right? 
Well, that and so the and that was Justice Kagan's argument is Congress is not competent to change the law. Congress doesn't understand this enough. <laughs> well, that is the whole like progressive thing, right? Yeah, that, the, the, that the Constitution the, is just a hindrance because yeah, things are more yeah. important than than the Constitution. So Democrats that, against democracy. But I have a question for you. Okay. Um, I didn't see anything that said that Jarkezi was being sued by anyone. Yeah, I don't think. Did you, you see not that? that? Not that I'm yeah. able to find. Now, I so that does make me think like pleading. it's political prosecution. So he, there's no damages, no victim, and the SEC just wants to fine him because they don't like his politics. That that's a possible. That is that's possible. Possibly true. Yeah. The other counter argument to that would be that the SEC, with their expertise, was able to go in and determine that he wasn't being forthright with his customers and his clients. Uh, before they were able to find out. So they maybe, didn't even know it. Right. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what happened. I just don't know because I haven't been able I to know. find. You start losing your money, you know, when you get below market returns, people will scratch that. Start and, asking questions, yeah, right? That's yeah. right. The, the the problem, I guess you would argue, and I'm just trying to give the good faith argument for the other side is if you're churning through the funds, if you're doing a Bernie Madoff and you're able using the new investments to pay off old money, you send yeah. out false statements. Yes. Maybe we yes. do need there to be some expert agency who's going to randomly check on those people to make sure they're not committing total fraud before all the money's gone. That would be the argument. But it doesn't mean that if you have an SEC that goes and investigates this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. that they should also have the right to be the judge. No. Well, well at that point, they, they can send you a letter and just say, you guys should have a class action suit. We're out. Yeah, and if it's criminal, they could turn it over to a grand jury or a yes, prosecutor. Right. right. So in this case, the fact that there isn't a class action suit or one that I'm not aware of makes me think that he, what his actions, I have no idea, but his actions may have been within the understanding of the people who were investing. Maybe they didn't even care. Maybe they just liked what he was doing with it. Maybe he was like my pillow and they were just like, I just like you. Here, it's, here's it's money. It's certainly within the realm of possibility yeah, the, definitely. that the FEC is doing this to be. Maybe it was a pack. Maybe he sent money out to the pack and they don't like that. And that's against the rules. Who knows? Maybe they did an FTX. Yeah, I, I was about to say it's not against the rules because we saw <laughs> FTX did not, FTX is not in trouble. What's his, what's the guy's name? It was running uh, SBF, Sam yeah. Bankman Fried. Sam Bankman Fried is not in trouble because he gave a bunch of money to Democrats. He's in trouble because he gave a bunch of money that wasn't his, that was supposed to be yes. invested on behalf of his investors. Yes. He was going through other people, yes. using other people's money. His dad was my, a professor of mine at law school. Krim. He's a tax guy, I think, but it was Krim. He was very nice. <laughs> I mean, I think that they have a weird ethic and I think that's what that is going on here. But, um, yeah, I wonder. He's another one. I wonder if it's if they really end up in if they do soft time or hard time. So yeah, that's going to be interesting to see what happens. That'll be an interesting. That'll be an interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I'll just because I, I, I think that whole thing is a setup to regulate Bitcoin and crypto the way 1929 might have been a setup to regulate the stock market. I'm kind of on your side on that one. That. What he did was not something inherently wrong with cryptocurrency. What he did was something wrong with anybody who's running some kind of managing somebody else's investments and he churns through the investments instead of investing them properly. He spent, when you, Monica, give me $100,000, I will invest it properly and you can trust Mm -hmm. me with it. And instead I go to Vegas and start playing blackjack and roulette with the money. 
that doesn't mean we need to get rid of the dollar. You know who, who went to jail for that? Who did that? Jared Kushner's father went to jail for taking money. You know who Jared Kushner is? Yep. Is so Trump's son-in-law. Went to jail for taking money out of his company, and he was in partnership with his brother. He took money and was Hillary Clinton's biggest donor. Oh, wow. And he took all that money, gave it to Hillary Clinton, and, and then the brother was suing him. And what he did was he set his brother up with a prostitute, recorded it, went to his brother's wife and said, I'm going to reveal this if you guys don't roll over and stop suing me. And she pressed charges against him for that, for blackmail. And then he went to jail. So see, the SEC didn't do that and they would not do that for sure. <laughs> that is not how it would have gone if she hadn't stood her ground because common law is awesome. Tort law is awesome. You know, taking people, you know what I mean? Pressing charges is awesome. You don't need all this command and control if you just have, you know, they, these ancient systems are work. So let me just be clear about how much I agree with you. I actually made this case to my administrative law professor when I was in law school. And, and he and I actually was one of the few interesting discussions I had in law school where the professor told me to be quiet. Nice. That means you were right. The argument that I made was, aren't a lot of these things, these agencies doing things that it, it, at common law, you would have a remedy. And the mm -hmm. specific example we were talking about was pollution. Do we need- Oh my gosh. Yes. I have used that. Uh, Murray Rothbard uses that yeah. example. And I, I didn't know it at the time. I just came out of my own in class. As a, do you know that? Murray Rothbard has that? I do now, but famous I didn't know example? it at the time. Yeah. Right. But the idea of if I dump a bunch of pollution into the river, if you're downstream from me, you can sue me for damages and you can fix, make me fix the riverbank. Now, the one downside of it would be, what if you go broke, be one of all the people suing you, then they don't have a total remedy. But you don't need, a, the agencies aren't going to make you whole either. Right. I mean, that's they're, the thing. It's all just nailing a squirrel, squirrel yeah. to the tree. It's just, it's just a, it, that's the whole thing with common law. It's like, it's not necessarily true that you can go back in time and write that wrong, but it is now crystal clear. There's a precedent when you do this, that happens. And they were actually, what Murray Rothbard says is that the government actually stepped in when people were suing for the smog that was polluting their land, their trees and killing their trees. And the government stepped in and said, in the name of progress, we cannot allow you to assert your proper private property rights. So they had stepped in and prevented that. There's so they, um, were, they were taking yeah. a political position. They weren't doing it as neutral experts. They took a political position in favor of progress and essentially big industry. And right. That's Corrupt one of the big, position. Right. Yeah. That's one of the big flaws with that, with what Woodrow Wilson and FDR were both arguing for is that the experts who are going to put these rules out there are not going to be neutral experts. We're doing what's best for everybody. They're going to have a political agenda. Even if they were as honest as the, your favorite minister when or priest that you've ever met, the very most honest experts, they're still going to have to decide between competing interests. And instead of those competing interests being decided democratically or through the representative process, you just have to trust these eight, these administrative experts to decide who's the winner and who's the loser. And that's another problem with administrative agencies. Uh, right. what, what I wanted to kind of make sure we cover everything with is the last thing is so in, in Noah Rosenblum's article, once again, it's called the case that could destroy the government. This is November 27th, 2023 uh, in the Atlantic is after he describes this idea that the 
Fifth Circuit and potentially the Supreme Court are going to throw out the non-delegation doctrine. And as I said to you a minute ago, I don't think right. the news isn't that good. It's just going to take uh, Congress passing an amendment to Dodd-Frank or the SEC law saying, here's the guiding principle on when you prosecute people in an Article Three court, when you prosecute people before the agency. But he says, this is wild stuff. Not long ago, a lawyer would have been lapped out of court for making such non-delegation claims. Today, they'd have a good chance of destroying the federal government's administrative capacity, taking down its ability to protect Americans' health and safety while unleashing fraud in the financial markets. Now, talk about fear porn. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, I don't think the news... Well, it is, I, I like that it's a jury. It's a right to a jury trial. Who could object to that? That's a problem. I, I don't know who said it, but... And I don't know. It, it might have been Churchill. I don't like, but... Um, said that the gr- single greatest element of modern law or English law is the jury trial. Yeah. And actually the fifth circuit quotes some of that language about the founding fathers and what they yeah. said about the right. Critical. So here's our only hope sometimes. Right. So the, so on one point there's the, the, the right to a jury trial when you've been accused of the stuff. But the other point that, that the author is making, Mr. Rosenblum is making is that the agencies won't be able to make up these rules anymore. If the non-delegation doctrine is drawn down. And we've talked about this before, but I just want to be really clear. I think he's overly, he's overselling the fear that we should have. We wish. We wish that they couldn't do that anymore. That's true. Even if the non-delegation doctrine was was enforced in courts the way that the original people were arguing for it back in the 1800s and up until FDR, which is, if it's a real rule, if it's enforcing something that can result in you either going to jail or paying a fine, that rule should be passed by Congress. Because and you should be voted on. We should just, you should follow Article One that has to be voted on by majority of the House, majority of the Senate, and signed by the president. That's how rules are made in the United States. That's what we put in place. Even if that rule was really enforced, I think he's full of absolute bullcrap to say that, that they would take down the ability of, to, of, of the government to protect America's health and safety because these agencies could still do investigations, they still would have the power to write proposed rules. They still would be able to report to Congress on what new rules we need to have. It would just be up to our elected individuals, elected people in the House and the Senate to actually decide which of those rules we should have to live by. That's the whole point. And that's what the founding fathers put in place. So kind of the, my concluding point about that is one of my favorite Supreme Court justices, other than Justice Thomas, is Justice Scalia says, what is the most important part of our Constitution that has made America different from everybody else? The Bill of Rights. but. He says, he says that's the common answer, and that's not true. Okay, what is it? The Bill of Rights, uh, those kind of rights, if you look at the Soviet Union's Bill of Rights, it even has more clear rights than the, our Bill of Rights about the right to protest the government, the right to hold government officials accountable. Hmm. The point is the Bill of Rights is no good if people don't hmm. believe in it and enforce it. How do we get away with enforcing it and keeping it alive in the United States where they have it in most of the other countries? And Justice Scalia's argument is it's the separation of powers. Hmm. We have an independent judiciary that really can throw out laws that are unconstitutional. If it's going to break the rules, the courts can throw it out. We have the legislator elected by the people that only they can pass laws, but they don't get to enforce them. The president gets to enforce the laws, but he doesn't get to decide what the rules are. Yes. The problem is when the further we down get, get down this road of uh, uh, administrative agencies doing this, 
the less we have the separation of powers that makes us a special country. And that's just horizontal. There's also the vertical separation of powers, which I think is equally important. That that like um, I think Denny Hester was like a complete pedophile and uh, was the FBI was watching him, whatever. He was the Speaker of the House. You don't even know his name. It's been like blotted out. And I think he was caught by local cops. So like you have to have this um, layered effect and subsidiarity where the local laws are more important. Um, so I, I go for that separation of powers in both directions. Yeah. So the, the, the way that I would the way I explain that to people, the way you just explained that the other separation of powers people forget about. So there's a separation of powers of the president gets to enforce the laws. The legislator creates the laws and the judiciary interprets the laws. But there's a separate uh, separation of powers. Of the United States Article four of the Constitution says that the powers of that the laws passed by the federal government are supreme over the states, but those laws can only be the type of laws authorized by the Constitution. So what's in Article 1, Section 8, listing the government's powers? Those right. are the and then the 10th Amendment. And the 10th Amendment clarifies that if it's not covered in the Constitution, if it's not in Article 1, Section 8, then the states are supreme. Easy, low-hanging fruit things like marriage and divorce and, and tort law. Those are the kind of things that the state, and how you run your police department. Mm -hmm. Those are all things that the states should have supreme power about and the federal government should be allowed to touch. And the whole point is this is what the founding fathers wanted. It's what America, it's why America is a special place in part, because it shouldn't be easy for the government to pass rules. It shouldn't be easy for the government to decide for us what to do. It's the horizontal and the vertical. I think that's a good way of putting it. I've thought of that before. But there's one case that I don't know if we've talked about and and if, you know, I, I, we can't get into it at length now, but I want to maybe put it on the docket for next time. It's the Westboro Baptist case. I think, do you, are you familiar with that? Because I think that bit. goes. I know about them and I know about the case, but I don't, what issue? Here's the proposition. We can talk about it and maybe we can make a package of things like this next time. First Amendment, whatever, and or tort or I don't know what. But uh, so if I recall correctly, Westboro Baptist Church, which is like a very sketchy thing, went to the funeral of a gay soldier and harassed the family during the funeral. And what they were what they had done. So then the Supreme Court said protected them and said it was free free speech. And my argument is I don't actually care about that First Amendment issue. That was intentional infliction of emotional distress. Very clearly, it was intentional. It was an infliction of emotional distress. They could have bankrupted Westboro. And then, but I, I don't think that happened. And then they went to Alex Jones and they said, we have to take you off the air because you... Uh, are inflicting emotional distress intentionally or unintentionally, and we have to curtail your freedom of speech. And so my my idea is, a priori, you cannot take away somebody's freedom of speech because even in a crowded, even if you cry fire in a crowded room, you know, a crowded movie theater, there's a stampede. There are actual damages. You are responsible for that. There are remedies. So I would like to talk to that kind of a priori restraint as part and parcel of the administrative state versus freedom and tort and common law. Yeah, I think, think that that's a fascinating topic. Where do you draw the line with free speech is part of what that, that boils down to. And we just saw this with the college presidents who all three mm -hmm. were private universities. They can have speech codes that, that really could say you are suspended from school if you misgender somebody. 
And essentially, they they teach those kids that. Yet at the same time, if they go out and and, and chant from the river to the sea, you know, Israel, you know, Palestine, Palestine be will be free. Palestine yeah. will be free. Israel has to be destroyed. Whatever. That that I don't that, know if they I don't know if they say the other stuff, but okay. Yeah, I mean, they were saying some pretty bad stuff from what I've heard, and then yeah, and, maybe. But I just feel like those those university professors are the heads of the universities are getting brought down because they're they've created a no win situation. They've created this world uh, in wh- why they don't have control over their own private institutions and just don't allow protests. Why 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 is it so political? Why provoke people constantly? Just teach us how to read and write. Like it's ridiculous. Because they allowed these protests because at the time they were on the side of... They liked it, yeah. Yeah, they they, they liked it because they were the oppressed people protesting right. who was seen as the oppressors, and that meets their, their criteria. If you don't mind, I'm going to throw out... I want to wrap up this with kind of one more uh, quote from, this, from the Fifth Circuit in this case that I think just kind of sums up the history of what we're talking about with the administrative agencies. The Supreme Court said this in, in 1936, just before the FDR judges took control. If administrative agencies are permitted gradually to extend their powers by encroachments, even petty encroachments, upon fundamental rights, privileges, and immunities of the people, the Supreme Court warned, we shall in the end, while avoiding the fatal consequences of a supreme autocracy, become submerged by a multitude of minor invasions of personal rights less destructive, but no less violative of constitutional guarantees. That was the Supreme Court in 1936, just before FDR. Wow. And so my really big picture view of this is we've kind of had the 80 years from the, the, the Constitution before to the Civil War, where the federal government almost did nothing. We had the 80 years between the Civil War and the 1930s, where the federal government grew, but it didn't get involved in everybody's life. And then we've had this 80 years since the 1930s where the federal government basically can do whatever they want to and we don't have constitutional limits anymore. And I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful with the Supreme Court we have now that it's time to, we generationally to reevaluate these priors, the 80 years of let's ignore the constitution and do what we think is best when it might not be that it's time for people to start actually going, no, the constitution doesn't say that. That would be great. I mean, I'm all for it. Like, I'm happy for even with my anarchist tendencies, I would be completely happy with a compromise that simply restored the Constitution. I'll sign that. I will sign that contract. (laughs) So it's always such a pleasure. So fascinating. I love talking to you. I love listening to you. And I know you put a lot of effort into it. It's very generous of you. I appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to talking about drawing the line of the First Amendment. And I also want to fold in this idea that you don't have to um, a priori restraint versus the remedies of tort are is an important concept that people don't understand. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you very much, Eric, for being here. Let's talk again, hopefully in January. Thank you, Monica. Uh, yeah. Yep. Have, a, have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Monica Perez, and this has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Monica Perez.